So we're going to be looking at a really, really interesting couple of chapters this evening. Now, the studies of the weekend are the studies in the gospel. So we're going to cheat a little this evening because we're going to go before the study of the gospels. We're going to go to the prophecy of Isaiah because I think you've got two or three sessions on the gospels and we can't go into them without looking at the birth of one very special man, the Lord. And and a prophecy about his birth came way, way before he was born, just over 2,000 years ago. It's the time during a famous king known as Hezekiah. So I I, I don't think we're going to have a reading because we started just a little later. So we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7. So we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be flicking a little bit between a couple of the Gospels, but we're going to be mainly centering on Isaiah 7. This is the, one of the, I would say, one of the most important prophecies we have in the Bible concerning the birth and the life of the Lord Jesus. You know, he was a very, very special man. He was a special boy. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he he fulfilled what? What did he fulfill? I'm going to ask a few questions. I mentioned earlier, I'm going to ask a a few questions because Jesus asked a lot of questions. And if it's good enough for Jesus, well, I guess it's good enough for me. So I'm going to ask a few questions. The, The first question I'm going to ask is, what did Jesus fulfill in his life? What did he come to, to, to fulfill? What was the point of him? Have a little think and if you've got a, you know any answers a good answer honestly we're, we're really relaxed this evening so any answers a good answer what did jesus come to fulfill to permanently cover our sins he came to permanently cover our sins okay through the shedding of blood and the remission of sins absolutely what other things do you what other thing did he come and fulfill what came before him I'll give you a clue. We're in it pretty much now. Word of God. Absolutely. Right. He came to fulfill the word of God. He was the word made flesh. Everything about Jesus. He was the word. And there's some famous chapters in the Gospels that talk about Jesus being the law, the Psalms and the prophets. He was the fulfillment of everything. So when we come to the Psalms and we look at those emotional poems You know, the stories and the Psalms of David as he pens through inspiration, as he pens these words, they're all showing just a window into the eyes of the Lord. And when he was a boy, just your age, he was fulfilling Bible prophecy. I'll read these words to you. These are written from David, but who do you think they speak of? It's in Psalm 88 and verse 15. I am afflicted. And close to death from my youth up. They're written by David, about David, but they're about the Lord Jesus Christ. From a child, friends, when he was your age, he knew that he was going to die in the most cruel, inhumane way possible. From my youth, says the Psalms, I was afflicted. You know, think about the burden that would be on you as you go about your daily lives. 
that you know from God and you know from the Bible that there's going to be a moment in which you are going to be hung on a tree for the people who killed you. You know, historians tell us um, around 4 BC, so around the time of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth, there were 2,000 crucifixions in Jerusalem. And so as a boy, as he grew up, everywhere Jesus went, he saw people being crucified. And it would have reminded him exactly where his destiny lied. Because he was going to be hung upon a tree. And as a child, it would have been unavoidable for Jesus. Totally unavoidable. He was very, very special. Does anybody know what job Jesus had? What was his job? What what did he do for a living? He would be a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Thank you, Hannah. He was a carpenter. Now, look, in our Bibles, we've got it in English, haven't we? But, but the, obviously the, the New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written in, written in Greek. And in the Greek, the word carpenter doesn't necessarily mean what we think as a carpenter. So we think, don't we, as a carpenter, somebody who works with wood. But in the Greek, it's the, it's the, it's the Greek word tekton. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about geography here because I know you're at school. Some of you at school, some of you probably left school. But does anybody know what that word tecton could be? Think about geography. Think about volcanoes. Anyone heard of tectonic plates? Yeah? Tectonic plates are the plates that we stand on. It's underneath the earth and they're big, massive sheets of rock that slowly move. And they're called tectonic plates. And it, it comes from this very word tecton, which is that word carpenter. So it's highly likely that Jesus wasn't, in fact, a man who dealt with wood. But was a man who dealt with wood and stone. He was a carpenter and he was a stonemason. As a boy. Now, now think about this as a child. Think about the destiny that lay ahead of the Lord. Think about every time he picked up a plank of wood and hammered in a nail. What do you think he would have thought of? As a young boy looking around him with these 2000 crucifixions that was orchestrated by the the king of the day his job was a carpenter and a stonemason and every time he picked up a sheet of wood a plank of wood and hit a nail into that wood what do you think Jesus as a boy would have thought of probably of his death to come his death to come where they nailed into him Roman nails upon a piece of wood Now think about the other job he could have had, a stonemason. What do you think Jesus would have thought of when he picked up a stone and chiseled it? It's a harder question, isn't it? Well, who's our chief cornerstone? It's Jesus, isn't it? And we're building upon that chief cornerstone as little stones, building on him. We know the 
the analogies. We know the stories of the house of Christ, and we're all building on that one chief cornerstone. So as a boy, he would have known the work of his death in working with wood and nails, but he would have also known the work of his life, his purpose, as he dealt with stones and chiseled them and shaped them that they may be neatly fit together. So as a boy, friends, we don't know much about Jesus as a, a young man, but he was that word and he was learning his father's business. And at 12 years of age, we're introduced to him in the temple. So I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, we're going to get through all the material tonight. To be honest, I'm going to let you into a secret. I thought we'd have a few older ones this evening. So I'm going to try and pitch it so we can all get something from it. So we're going to go with hopefully still in Isaiah chapter seven. Okay, Isaiah chapter seven. So who is the king in this chapter? If you look at the first few verses, who is it? Well, he's a king called Ahaz. Now, give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down if Ahaz was a good, good king or a bad king. If he was good, give me a thumbs up. If he was bad, give me a thumbs down. What do you think? He was a bad king. Yeah, he was a bad king. If you put your thumbs up, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's a hard question. He was a bad king. He was the king of Israel, right? And Isaiah comes to him with a message of hope because right now in the land of Jerusalem, Lots of troubling things are happening, okay? No one's reading their Bibles anymore. There's a nation called the nation of Assyria who are just about to come and take Israel. And so all chaos is breaking. And Isaiah now comes to this evil king with a message of hope. And that hope, friends, is the hope of Messiah. This is what the prophecy is all about. So we're really getting into some deeper things this evening, right, Emmanuel? It's a... It's a it's a deep subject, but hopefully we can get something from it, right? So in verse 11, Isaiah comes to the king and I, he says to them, him, look, I'm going to give you from God a message. I want you to ask for a sign, okay? A sign. Now, the first time we read that one word sign is in the book of Genesis, Chapter one in creation. And on the fourth day of creation, he created great lights in the heavens. What were those lights? What were the lights in the heavens? Did, you, did God create? The stars. The stars. And in Genesis 1, verse 14, God says that the stars in the heaven are signs, he says. And here Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, I want you to ask for a sign. At what point in the Bible do we have a sign of a star? When Jesus was born. When Jesus was born. Absolutely. The stars in Genesis were signs of God's handiwork. And here Isaiah is saying, ask for a sign to the king of eight, to the king Ahaz. And many, many years later, a sign was going to shine in the sky. And the shepherds who kept watch would see the sign of Jesus. This was 
going to be a prophecy about a future king. Now, just for the older brothers and sisters here, I was going to talk about Hezekiah, right, and show that this is about Hezekiah as well. But I don't think we're going to do it because we're going to overcomplicate it. We're just going to be focusing on Jesus. But for those of you who'd like to take note, there's two people that, that Isaiah is talking about here. He's talking about a man called Hezekiah, who was going to be the next king, who was really good. And it also speaks about a future King Jesus. So we're just going to be focusing on Jesus, right? Okay, so I'm just going to get the elephant out of the room with that one. So it's about two men, Jesus and Hezekiah, but we're going to be focusing on Jesus. So here's this sign, right? Now, if you look at verse 11, Isaiah continues and he says, look, don't just ask for a sign. I want you to ask for a sign from the depths to the what? In fact, can someone read verse 11 for me so it's not just all me? Stephen Hale, would you like to read Isaiah 7 verse 11, please? Me, does it look, yeah? Yes, please, yeah. Yeah, go on then. Okay. Thank you. Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Thank you. So he's not just asking for a sign. It's from the depths right below to the heights. Now, what does that mean? You know, from the depths to the heights. It doesn't really mean anything when you read it face value, does it? Okay, so we're going to find a little, what I call Bible gems, right? And my mom, who's hopefully listening, right? She loves Bible gems. So we're going to give a Bible gem right now. So when we think about this depth to height, the Bible all the way is going to explain different things. We're not just going to find the answers in one passage, right? So if you're looking at a chapter and you want to find all the answers, you can't do it. The Bible doesn't work like that. It's not like a normal story that's very two-dimensional, right? The Bible is very layered. So to get this idea of the heights and the depths, we're going to go, well, you don't need to turn there, but I'll talk to you about it. There's a chapter in Genesis, Genesis 49. And in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his children, right? And he goes through all of the sons. And it's a really long chapter of him blessing particular sons. Now, he comes to one very special boy. Who do you think it's going to be? A son of Jacob who's special. Who is it? Who was a very special son of Jacob? A man thrown in a pit. Joseph. Joseph. And Joseph is a wonderful type of Christ, isn't he? Right. Speaks so powerfully about Jesus. So when Jacob comes to Joseph, he gives him a special blessing. He says to him. From the womb below. To the milk above. Right. From the womb below. Now, this could be a bit too advanced for some of us. But from the womb below to the milk above. And he uses the same words here that Isaiah says, ask from the heights to the depths. And it's picking upon Jacob, who says to Joseph, from the depths of the womb to the heights of the milk. Now, look, let's be really, really open here. When you think of a womb and you think of milk, 
right? What do you think about or who do you think about? What type of person? Milk and a womb. A womb is where a baby grows. So that gives you a big clue. <laughs> so who does it remind you of? What type of person? Come on. Who has a baby and who delivers milk? A baby. Not a baby. A mum. A mum, a mother. Absolutely. And so when Isaiah says, ask from the heights to the depths, he's talking about the role of a mother. Where milk is from the heights and the womb is on the depths. And we're not going to go into detail about how that biologically happens, right? I'm sure you know a bit about it. But we've got milk from the heights, the womb from the depths. And so Isaiah is saying, look, ask for a sign that's the sign of a woman, a mother, who's going to bear a child. That's a Bible nugget. The height of the milk, the depths of the womb. Now, I'm going to go even further. One step further. I could be going too advanced here. If I lose you, I lose you, right? But it's good to know. When Jacob blesses Joseph and talks about the milk and the womb, he uses the phrase El Shaddai, or mighty God. He says, almighty God is going to bless you, Jacob, from the heights of the, of the milk to the depths of the womb. Does anybody know what Joseph's name means? Fruitful. Because out of Jacob, Joseph, came many children right? It was all about a seed bearing a family. And it comes to Joseph because of all the sons of Jacob, Joseph was the one who was going to have a huge family. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to him, he's the one who's going to have a huge family, isn't he? We are fruits of him. He's our first fruits. But the word almighty God, when Jacob says almighty God is going to bless you, Joseph, that word, El Shaddai, or mighty God, is the phrase associated to God being a nursing father. In other words, friends, in a very, very long-winded way, when Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, he wasn't just talking about the stars in the heavens that would show Christ's birth. He was asking Ahaz for a sign to show a mother who would bear a special boy, a fruitful boy who was going to be the savior of the world. And they call him Emmanuel, but we call him Jesus. And we're going to try and figure out why the name of Jesus is Emmanuel as well as Jesus. He has two names. Hopefully we will get there, but he has two names. Where do we get the phrase, the seed of the woman? Where in the Bible does that come from? The seed of the woman. Um, in Genesis chapter three. Genesis three, that special promise where the seed of the woman 
would destroy sin. And so Isaiah is coming up to Ahaz and Ahaz is in misery. There's nothing happening in Jerusalem. They're about to be almost destroyed by another nation. There's no one opening their Bible. And Isaiah says, ask for the seed of the woman, the special boy. And Ahaz rejects. He says, I don't want to because he was an evil king. And Isaiah says in look, look in verse 14. He says, ask for a sign and it shall be given to you. A virgin shall conceive. Who's that talking about? A virgin shall conceive. Who in the Bible? It's talking about Mary, isn't it? This was written hundreds of years before Jesus's birth. And look, we're going through a bit of depth here, right? There's a little bit of depth. But we're just trying, trying to try and show you that the Bible is just extraordinary. That we can look at these little things and we can piece things together. And the language, like poetry, it's beautiful. It's genius. The whole thing's genius. It's written by the word of God. It's totally inspired. A virgin shall conceive. You know, Jesus says, ask and it shall be given unto you. And here Isaiah is saying, ask for a sign. You see, if there's anything I want you to get from this session, all we've got to do is ask for that. Ask for the sign. We've got Emmanuel. God is with us in Christ. He can save us. He can save us from the misery that we that we all find ourselves in. You know, younger kids, you don't know what misery is, right? Because <laughs> you're too young. You're way too young. But us older ones know what miserable times are like. We know what dark times are like. And all we've got to do is think about the sign of the Lord and it gives us hope. Because that's the whole point of life. The whole point is to acknowledge that Emmanuel can save us. And as you get older, you want saving. Believe me, you really do want saving. Not from the enemies out there, from yourself, really. Because at the end of the day, we're our own worst enemies. And we need saving from ourselves. And Jesus can do that. A virgin shall conceive. Look at this. This is wonderful. Right. Verse 15. What does this child, Emmanuel, have to eat? Right. Go on. Someone answer the question in verse 15. What does he eat? Butter and honey. Butter and honey. Now, look. Right. The Bible at times is not literal. <laughs> We've got to look at spiritual language. If you had a diet on butter and honey, I'm sure you'd be told off. It's not a good diet. Right. But the Bible's not drawing our attention to the diet of Jesus in terms of keeping healthy. Right. It's talking about something else. You know, that phrase butter. It means in the Hebrew curdled milk. So. Read the phrase again, but change it from butter to curdled milk. What does he what does he have now to eat? It's not butter and honey. What is it? Curdled milk and honey. Milk and honey. And what does milk and honey remind you of? Exodus. The Exodus, but what was of milk and honey? The land. 
the land, the kingdom, right? But we can go one step further because milk and, milk and honey in the Bible have spiritual meanings. What do you think milk represents in the Bible? What do you think milk represents in the Bible? What do you think? Any guesses? I'll tell you. It means the word of God. In 1 Peter 2, it says, as newborn babes crave spiritual milk. And this is a sign of a little boy called Jesus. And as he grew up, he craved spiritual milk, which was the word of God. That was his diet. It's not talking about what he physically ate. It's talking about what he spiritually had. So if milk speaks of the word of God, what do you think honey speaks of? Shall I tell you? Believe it or not, it means the word of God, right? Proverbs tells us and Psalms tells us, thy word is like honey, sweet to my soul and tasteful to my lips. So Jesus, as a boy, had milk and honey because it's spiritually speaking about the sweetness of God's word and the nourishment of God's word. That was what he ate. That's what he had. And that's why as he grew up, he grew with God. It's not talking about what he physically ate, right? And that's what we've got to try and do. And look, here's another thing. As you get older, you begin to realize how sweet and beautiful the word of God is. And you begin to realize as well, like milk, how nourishing the word of God is. It saves your soul. And that's what's being brought out here with this little boy who we know as Jesus as he grew up. Now, I'm at loggerheads now, <laughs> whether to go to the next bit or, or, or move on. I think, look, I'm, we're going to go for it. Look, let's just, let's just go for it. Right. So we're going to go to um, verse three. OK, we'll try and we'll try and get this. But it, it is lovely. And I know you're all really smart, so it, it's fine. Right. So if you look at verse three. When Isaiah meets Ahaz, obviously he says all this stuff that we've talked about. You know, he says, ask for a sign, the stars in the skies. It was in Genesis. He then says, ask from the heights, the depths that speaks of the milk. And then it speaks of the womb that speaks of Jesus's birth. And then he says, this child is going to eat butter and milk, which speaks of the word of God. It's, it's a, showing us a lovely portrait, a beautiful painting of this little child called Jesus as he grew up. But it's not just what Isaiah said that had an influence. It was also where he was. Where was he in verse three? The fellow's field. Yeah, he was at the 
the end of the conduit I've got, right, which is a really awkward word, the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. I mean, that is very specific, isn't it? If we think about it, if you look at verse three, it's telling us exactly where Isaiah was as he speaks to Ahaz of the sign of Emmanuel. I'll go through it again. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, right? That's a really specific. And when the Bible's specific about something, it's drawing our attention to it for a reason, right? It wants us to find out the spiritual meaning of exactly where Ahaz was. So, if you look at that word conduit, you might have another translation. You might be reading from the NIV, the ESV. You might have different, different translations. But basically, a conduit is like a channel of water. Okay? And we've got the spring, a big spring. Does anybody know what the spring could be? That's a really hard question. Any of the older people might know it. A really famous spring beginning with G. The Gihon Spring, right? If you've been to Jerusalem, it's still there. We can see, see the Gihon Spring. So Ahaz is, sorry, Isaiah is right next to the Gihon Spring, a big pool of water. And this conduit is like a channel of water that's feeding from this big pool into different locations across Jerusalem, right? So why is that important? Why is it important that it's talking here about this big pool of water and this channel? Well, I think it's important because that big pool of water, the Gihon Spring, means something really interesting. The word Gihon, right, means gushing waters. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but I think I have to. Because we've got to think about very carefully here, when we think about a child being born, we're thinking about a manual being born here, the child, the Messiah, the Savior. And as Isaiah stands at the Gihon Spring, he's drawing us to these big gushing waters, okay? Now, I don't want to ask the question, but just before a woman gives birth, there's something known as that their waters break. Because the baby can't stay in the womb. And the waters break. And so here in the, we're talking about a child being born. Here, Isaiah is in the place of rushing waters. You know, Job... I'll use the word. Job uses the word Gihon in verse chapter 38 and verse 8 as a word known for a woman bearing child. He's at the place that represents the birth of a child, the rushing of waters, like a woman in labor, just about to give birth. You know, today... The Gihon Spring, do you know what it's called? It's called the Virgin Springs. The place in which Isaiah stood 
the place that symbolizes giving birth to a child is now known today as the Virgin Waters. And they called it the Virgin Waters because nobody knew where the waters actually originated from. Because it was deep underground and for years and years and years, no one knew where this fresh water came from. And when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he had no natural father. It was a miracle. Just like the people believe that these rushing waters was a miracle. The Virgin Springs. Now, there's another one. Right. There's another one here. If you look at the word. Right. So he's at the, the Gihon Spring. And you'll notice there. It says he was at the highway of the Fuller's Field. Right. You think about this. So he's in this channel of water behind him are these rushing waters known as the Virgin Springs. And he's at this location right now called the Highway of the Fuller's Field. Now, if you looked in your Bibles carefully, we don't want to go into it too deeply. Right. But that place, the Highway of the Fuller's Field, is where men and women used to wash their garments. Why is that important when we think about Jesus? Washing garments. Why do you think? Why would this location be really important when we think about Jesus? This was the place where they used to wash their garments in the waters. Why do you think? Who do we and made us clean? Absolutely. They made their garments clean. And who makes us clean? Jesus. Jesus. Exactly. So not only is Isaiah saying, ask for a sign, ask from the milk, ask from the womb, but he's in the very place that speaks of the breaking of waters as a child being born. And he's in the very channel in which people used to wash their clothes. The whole thing's about Jesus. The whole thing. This prophecy, the whole lot was speaking profoundly about the future messiah you know this this spring of water right that that isaiah finds himself in the fullest field and the this channel of water eventually if you go to jerusalem you'll find that this particular channel eventually arrives at a place that leads right outside the king's court where the king used to live And so the channel of water that Isaiah stands upon, behind him, with the rushing of waters, speaks of the birth of Jesus. And the channel of water goes right to the place that speaks of the kingship of Jesus. We've got the whole life of Christ mapped out for us. In this one chapter where Isaiah stands and talks about Emmanuel, the whole thing is bringing our minds to this wonderful man we center our entire lives around.
Now, look, I know that's probably a bit too deep, but I don't care, right? It's good to go a little bit deep and, and, and find these things out because it just shows how amazing the word is. And I want to challenge, right? I don't want to make things easy, right? School makes things difficult. The Bible can make things very, very challenging and it's good. So that's where Isaiah is. Now, if it picked up a few things along the line, that's great. It's just showing here the sign Emmanuel, right? We're going to finish off with, with Mary, OK, we're going to finish off with the virgin who conceived. So there's Isaiah speaking to Ahaz. Ahaz does not want this sign. And so the sign comes then many years later when Christ was born. So we're going to find ourselves now in the gospel of Luke, uh, Matthew, sorry. So if you go to Matthew. And you go to verse one. In fact, there's two more places we'll go to. We'll go through this really quickly, this bit. I just want to prove to you, okay, this is a prophecy. In verse one, Mary found that she was with child. Now, how old do you think Mary would have been here? How old do you think she would have been? Around 14. Exactly. 14. The mother of Jesus was a child herself. And we think about the responsibility of Christ as he grew up as a boy. As he saw men and women being crucified, as he was the son of a carpenter dealing with wood and nails and potentially a stonemason as he chiseled stone. As the Psalms talk about, from my youth I was afflicted. We think about the burden of the Lord, and, and rightly so. But let's think about the burden of his mother. The responsibility that she had. Raising up Emmanuel. The one who was promised from the foundation of the earth. The one in which the whole word centers around that without him, the Bible doesn't make sense. And it was down to her, Mary. And who was she, friends? She was a simple woman. A 14 year old teenager. Who found herself pregnant. With no good explanation. And she comes potentially from the worst possible place in all of Israel. Where does Mary come from? Where's her home? Begins with N. Pardon? Nazareth. Nazareth. What, what do we know about Nazareth? What is it we know about it? Was it a good place to live? Give me thumbs down or thumbs up. Was it a good place to live? Yes or no? No, it wasn't. In fact, it was said to Jesus, are you the son of Mary, the carpenter's son of Nazareth? And then they say to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> they said that to Emmanuel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, the name Nazareth means root. 
the place of the root. What does the Bible talk about when it thinks and it speaks about roots? Well, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was the root of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Who was Jesse? And who was David? The king of Israel. So when they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? They were actually saying, can anything good come from the root, the house of the root, the place of the root? And little did they know they were saying this, that, that question to the man who was of the line of David, the root of Jesse. He, friends, was their rightful king. And they say, is anything good from, come from Nazareth? As they ridicule his mother and degrade his father, Joseph. Where did she give birth to Jesus? She gave birth in Bethlehem. Was Bethlehem a good place or a bad place to live? Naturally speaking, if you're a spiritual man, it's a great place to live. But if you're a natural man, is it a good place or a bad place to live? Bad place. Micah 5 says that Judah, Bethlehem, was the lowliest of all the cities of Judah. And there's Mary, who's the seed of David. Friends, what I'm trying to say is that to normal people look, looking at Mary, she was an ordinary person. You'd walk by her and walk past her in the street and you wouldn't look back. But to God, friends, she was a princess. Luke, just a couple of minutes. Just a couple of minutes. Oh, yeah. yeah. But to God, she was a princess. She was of the line of David. And look what it says in verse 23. Gabriel comes to this very special woman and says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Where have we read that before? What chapter have we just seen? which we've read that come on make me feel good about myself where we just read that phrase a virgin shall conceive in verse in chapter one of matthew don't leave me hanging here guys isaiah, isaiah seven. thank you oh, oh i'm sweating there isaiah seven proving to us that it's a prophecy about Mary. It's a prophecy about this really special woman. And look, we have gone into detail, but I, I'm going to finish off. I've got two minutes. Two minutes starting from now, Stephen, yeah? Right? Two minutes starting from now. My question is, and we're going to answer it together. Why does Jesus have two names? Why is he called Emmanuel here, but also known as Jesus? Why do you think? Any guesses? Shall I, shall, I, shall I tell you? You like to know why Jesus has two names? Or no? Well, I've got some nodding heads. That's great. 
The name Jesus was his natural name. That was the name he was known as in his natural life. A name given to him by his natural father, Joseph. It was the name Jesus that associated him as the carpenter's son. It was the name Jesus that associated him with Bethlehem, little and small. It was the name Jesus in which we know him as one who's despised and rejected, hated. It's the name Jesus where they took him and committed him as a criminal on an unfair trial sentenced to death. It was the name Jesus in which he was known to his brethren, one of which was Judas who betrayed him. The name Jesus is associated in his natural life, given by his natural father. But the name Emmanuel is the name that was given and directed by his mother. Do you know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. God with us. And so with Jesus, the two names, the one is his natural in which he was sentenced to death. But Emmanuel is his spiritual name in which he gives us life. Thank you very much. Stephen, would you mind closing this session in prayer?